her 2016 article included in Business Insider, Rachel Gillett wrote, From the biological side of things to how we're nurtured, a lot of what goes on in childhood influences how we turn out as adults. And while there definitely isn't a set recipe for ensuring achievement in adulthood, research shows how important these biological as well as educational factors can be to one's future success. Barbara Jordan, the first African-American woman to be elected to the Texas State Senate and the first Southern African-American woman elected to the U.S. House of Representatives, is one of the most admired leaders and rhetoricians in American history. Jordan is most famously known for delivering the keynote address at the 1976 Democratic National Convention, inspiring the creation of books, articles, and documentaries that tell her story. In Linda Ferrer Buckley's article, Remember the world is not a playground, but a schoolroom, Buckley discusses the lack of regard of how Jordan's formative years in Houston contributed to her success, specifically as a leader and speaker. In this podcast, we will be discussing the article with Professor Linda Ferrer Buckley in order to clarify her ideas and introduce them to a wider audience that may be interested in taking a class with her in the future. I am Rose Torres, and this is Gabrielle Pons from Rhetoric 321. Stay with us. Linda Ferreira Buckley is currently an associate professor for the University of Texas at Austin's Department of English and Rhetoric and Writing. She received a BA in English at Providence College and continued on to complete her MA in English at Pennsylvania State University. Ferreira Buckley also completed her PhD in Rhetoric at Pennsylvania State University. Some of her accolades include numerous published articles and book chapters discussing rhetorical theory and literature. In 2012, Freire Buckley wrote her dissertation on the origins of English studies, discussing the influence of rhetoric on Victorian education, language books, and nonfiction prose writers, and is currently researching and writing another book, The Rhetorical Education of Barbara Jordan, The Good Woman Speaking Well. Do you know what that illusion is? The good woman speaking well? That's this allusion to my favorite classical rhetorician, Quintilian, who wrote a 12-volume book called The Institutes of Oratory. And the rhetor, the great orator, is defined as the good man, as in the ethical man, speaking well. So he's tying ethics and oratory together. And for me, that's very much a description of Jordan, the way that her rhetorical prowess and the power of what she says comes from her moral center, so that she's both principled but savvy. And what Quintilian says about his book is the whole Institutes of Oratory, is it's the education of the orator from cradle to grave. And he's insisting that there is not this specific period in life which a person is made or is learning just between certain years but continues to grow. Um, he was talking about men's lives and of course now it's women too. So anyway, that's what the illusion is too. Yeah, I love that. 
So we discussed some of your education and degrees you've received, introducing the work you've completed and the current project you're researching and writing about, the rhetorical education of Barbara Jordan, which we'll discuss a little bit later. But at UT, you taught some classes such as Rhetoric 330D, Women's Rhetorical Traditions, and Rhetoric 330E, Film as Rhetoric. Would you like to introduce yourself personally for the audience? So when I started at UT, I think I was probably the last generation of people who had been fortunate enough to be hired for a very specific, closely defined historical period. So I was hired as someone who was going to be the specialist in 18th and 19th century rhetoric, the period on which I focused my dissertation. And I will say that like most people in my field, rhetoric and writing, you don't just do historical rhetoric and look at things in the past our passion comes also from teaching writing and thinking about the role of language in people's lives and education. So I've also taught most years, sometimes once a semester, I'll teach a course in British Victorian literature. And I want to say quite emphatically that through my master's program, I was focusing on literature and I I loved reading novels, like most people. But the Victorian novel and Victorian nonfiction prose caught my attention and sustained it, and has sustained it now, good grief, 40 years. And the reason is because it was quite clear that the nonfiction prose and the novels were making arguments about political, cultural, economic problems. It wasn't just about entertaining. It was tell us a narrative that pulls readers in to alert the middle classes to problems that they are ethically bound to care about. And toward the end of my master's degree, I thought this is the period that I want to stay in and I want to do this thing called rhetoric. So we briefly introduced your dissertation on the origins of English studies, which includes topics such as Victorian literature and education and language. Barbara Jordan is a very different era. So we wondered Mm -hmm. what initially sparked your interest in focusing your studies on Jordan and her rhetorical education. Yeah, it is very different. The Victorian stuff are all dead white men. And make no mistake, I love reading work by dead white men, but I had never written anything about women per se. Now, yes, George Eliot, Jane Austen, that, right. But I was sort of intrigued. That, oh, wow, now I get to study someone who is not dead. <laughs> she is now, I'm sorry to say. And a person of color, which is sort of exciting to me to be able to study someone who so changed American political life during my lifetime. When my husband and I moved to Texas, 
I realized that this famous woman, Barbara Jordan, taught at the LBJ school. She had to give up her work in the US House after three terms because um, she was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. And she was hired in Texas at UT. And my sister-in-law loved Barbara Jordan. And when Patty was in law school, Patty had poster blown up to be very big of Barbara Jordan delivering a speech. And the same photograph was above her desk when she too was an undergraduate at Providence College, right? And so I'd been asking Patty about, you know, who is this woman? Why is she important? And so um, through the years, I'd learned about Barbara Jordan from my sister-in-law. When we moved here and I realized Barbara Jordan was here and Patty came to visit, I thought, oh, Yes, I know what I'm going to do. And I called up Barbara Jordan and asked if I could take Patty down to meet her during her office hours at the LBJ school. And she was fantastic. And she said, oh, I, in that great booming voice, I can do better than that. Why don't you invite her to come to my ethics seminar? So she sat in on Barbara Jordan's course and said it was the most ex amazing experience of her life. And that's how I began to think about Barbara Jordan. So then a biography of Barbara Jordan came out and its focus wasn't rhetorical, but as I read about Barbara Jordan's early formative years, I thought, my gosh, this is this formation of this great orator. And I thought about Quintilian's description of the orator as the good man speaking well and this lifelong education. And I was hooked. And ever since then, I've thought about Barbara Jordan. But I have to say that I'm also compelled to think about what it would be like if she were alive today. And through the years, when we've had leaders who disappoint and strike me as behaving badly, doing destructive things in the world. I think about Barbara Jordan. And we need an orator again. Not just someone who speaks beautifully and powerfully, but someone whose words are coming from their intellect, from their heart, from their entire ethical base. So there's the long answer to what you thought was going to be a, a brief question. That is a lot of good information, though, because it, it definitely helps set up for the following questions. And these are more about the article you wrote mm -hmm. in regards to her education. And so our question is, besides talking about her life or her career, your article mainly goes into depth on rhetorical education in general. Could you please explain for the listeners what exactly a rhetorical education is? How would you describe that? That's a great question. So as you know, as a student of rhetoric yourself, rhetoric is defined in many different ways, right? So sometimes people are talking about college writing, or sometimes, if you're in the Renaissance, you would be thinking about it often largely in terms of style, right? So it ranges all over the place. 
for me, rhetorical education, when I talk about rhetorical education, I'm talking about the rhetorical education that is about using language and creating text. And text could be written, spoken, visual, to communicate with people in a way that represents yourself or your position, in a way that connects with another person or people to speak to issues of importance. And one of the things that I so value about our country has been its long-term commitment to public education. And though it's certainly true that everyone does not enjoy the same quality of education for so many different reasons that go well beyond the local school, right? It still strikes me as an ideal that we have to keep realizing. And as we all know, language education takes place all day long in English courses and out of English courses. The sorts of rhetorical education that I've studied and valued had for a long time been that which takes place in school. One of the things that becomes very clear from archives and so on is how much rhetorical education happens outside of school. So for example, in college education in the 19th century, it's quite clear that students gain more in their rhetorical understanding and performance by what they do outside of the college classroom. And that outside of the classroom is where it flourishes. And it turns out that when you look at people like Barbara Jordan, that any sense of, oh yeah, she learned to be a great speaker in law school. Oh no, it was her time as a debater at Texas Southern or her work in high school debate. That all of that is part of the picture, but that it really is a matter of all of these life experiences and opportunities and support throughout your life that contributes to people's ability to be deep thinkers. Kind of going back into the classroom, in Barbara Jordan's case, her rhetorical education began from a very early age, as you have gone into detail about. But there is some controversy over that. Your article begins by stating, most scholars agree that Barbara Jordan learned how to speak while attending Boston University. So personally, why do you believe that her education was only validated from her university years and on? And do you think scholars should pay more attention to childhood rhetorical education? Yes, to everything you said. And I'll just say, in terms of scholarship, it was often a tendency to try to locate the point at which rhetorical education occurs, right? You can go in and you can study it and you can draw conclusions, right? But all we have to do is look at the world around us to realize, no, it's not like, okay, now you've got the writing chip or the speaking chip, that it's a more complex process. So that was part of my motivation. And believe me, I'm not the only person who's ever thought this. I mean, this is generally where our field is now. 
in the case of Barbara Jordan, those conclusions were particularly offensive because one, it assumes that this school that was underfunded was in fact created because Texas legislators and the governor at the time wanted to be able to meet the standard of separate but equal. So they created Texas Southern Law School, for example, and just um, started in its beginning in one room, right? So that there's this sense that, well, Barbara Jordan couldn't have learned it there. I mean, it doesn't, there wasn't even an attempt to see what was going on in her college education, which was extraordinary. Do you know her, her college debate team beat Brown and Yale and tied Harvard? But, but that was never mentioned, nor was her high school education, nor her junior high education and all of this home life and community life that had a hugely formative effect. So, yeah, I was coming at it from the, I think, critical angle of no one just learns something at some point in their life that suddenly education begins to matter kind of still talking more about her early education. We understand that there are three main areas of influence, including her household, her family, growing up in the church and her church community, and then also schooling, secondary school. So which of these do you think, if you can choose, one that was the most significant in developing her early rhetorical skills? And if possible, which of these early influences do you think ended up being more critical to her later political career? I'm going to say I can't even separate them because they all seem to me to be inextricably bound in defining who she is. And obviously we hear church and we think, oh yes, that gives her the value base. But to understand the force of church for her is to understand one, she performed there so that she would recite poems and even hymns or historical documents church. I tried to talk a bit about the relationship between music education and rhetorical performance, which scholars have looked at even in the 18th century. And being in a supportive community where your accomplishments are published in the local newspaper. There were three African-American newspapers in circulation in Houston at that time, and they were all devoted to celebrating the accomplishments of community members, including the students who lived in the area. That has a huge force, and they covered these church events and performances. Another point I wanted to make about church is that they were politically involved. And one of the pastors there was involved, both the local and the national NAACP. And they learned about equality. That is, they came to see that all that they were learning in the Bible connected with what injustices were being done to them. So that Barbara Jordan could think about articulating arguments about Jim Crow. So all of that came together. That's why 
people don't have to rise to the heights that Barbara Jordan did to benefit from rhetorical education, right? My point is really that is no matter who we are, that even when we don't realize it, we're made who we are through lots of visible and invisible forces. Who Barbara Jordan was as an orator was a product of who she was as a person. And that these events and advantages and long-standing values are developed over time. I think something we want to touch on last about the article mainly is students reading the article may wonder furthermore about the overall effect of Jordan's rhetorical education. To you, would her political career have been significantly different if it weren't for the implicit rhetorical training at home and in the church or without the explicit training for like high school debate? It most certainly would not be the same without the implicit rhetorical training because all of her experiences led to her her sense of conviction. And she learned much of her rhetorical education, as you know, from her grandfather, maternal grandfather, who was a junk man, right, at a small junkyard. And he had been convicted unjustly of a crime and spent a long time in prison. And Jordan knew this. And she was the, the daughter that liked hanging around the junkyard with her grandfather, but this was one of her major incentives for learning to better the conditions of the world. And and then her church experiences and what she heard and the practice she was able to get came together with that. And of course, she honed those skills and got practice in those skills. In, In junior high school, high school, Texas Southern, I sort of think she would have been different if she hadn't had those kinds of experiences, which is not to say that she would not have been great if certain aspects within each of those three were missing. So moving on to another topic that's connecting the student's interest of your article. During our class discussion about your article, one of the students had an interesting question we thought would be important to include. Cassandra Williams thought, how can we ensure that students today have the same opportunities to receive the rhetorical training that Jordan got in her community and at Phyllis Wheatley High School? So how would you respond to that? That is such a great question. So my answer will be incomplete and won't make all the points that I believe are important. But as a quick answer, what I would say is students have to believe that what they're learning in school is connected with what they do outside of school. So they can use anything that they're learning in a language arts class or in an extracurricular activity such as debate. They see that it is part of being a person in the world and they are part of and have an obligation to community. And it could be local community. It could be the street they live on. It could be national. But until they see themselves as both part of and people that can make a difference individually and collectively, 
I don't think you can have a rhetorical education. I don't think you are truly a rhetorician if you're not in that context. I'm not saying technical, because technically, of course, you still have had a type of rhetorical education. That is, you've had some training in rhetoric, but that to me is not a rhetorical education. It's not sustained over time. So what can we do to ensure that students receive that sort of education? I would say support families and neighborhoods so that they can offer a whole array of opportunities, right? And the opportunity could be a place where students can get together and talk about something that might strike us as quite trivial. They understand that the avenues for reaching communities and outsiders are through social media. But somehow, some of that interest has to be diverted to the responsibilities of citizenship rather than just a sort of dismissive, they're all the same. I know that many, maybe most, people are concerned about what happens in the world, but they don't see themselves as people who can make a difference beyond themselves, right? Without being able to connect somehow one's inner motivation to problems one sees outside of the world, as Barbara Jordan did. But until we can get more people to care about these sorts of matters, it doesn't have to be changing civil rights in the country, but that something beyond selling and buying and self-promotion, we can't, well, I'll just stop there. That's good. You get, That's a good get point. point. We are reaching the end of our time together. So we just want to thank you for talking with us today. We hope you're staying safe and healthy during this time. Lastly, is there any information you would like to give our audience about your classes that might be upcoming this fall? In the, in the fall is a seminar that students who are invited into our honors program take as they begin their thesis. Right? And I, I said invited into the program, but that's a little bit misleading because students apply we read their applications, and they're invited into the program. We receive too few applications, I think. I know that there are scores more students who would contribute to the program, and I believe benefit from the experience of being in the program. So our deadline is in a couple of weeks. However, I will say publicly, Though, of course, my colleagues can't hear this, that if people are late getting in their application, we certainly wouldn't dismiss anyone because they missed the deadline. I hope they will work hard, keep in mind, so that they can apply to and be accepted into the Rhetoric and Writing Honors Program. It's interesting to read their work, but even more so, it's inspiring because they're using their education and their life experience, of course, in order to understand the way that power works for us and against us and the way that language works 
for and against us, not just on a one-to-one -one basis, but as it insinuates itself in the world. And I admire their drive and insight very much. It is so important for the future of our country and the world. How's that for a highfalutin way to end? <laughs> yes. <laughs> And it's so great to see you, Gabby, and you, Rose. When you see your class colleagues over Zoom, tell them hi. And thank you for questions. Was the, it wasn't Cassandra Williams, Cassandra. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Cassandra Williams. Thank her for that question, too. Thank you so much. Nice to see you. Nice to see you. Bye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. A big thank you to Linda Ferreira Buckley for speaking with us, to Brett Colston, Maddie Simpkins, Brianna Margo, Mark Longacre, and the Department of Rhetoric and Writing for making this broadcast possible. As a note, the opinions expressed in this podcast belong to the speakers and not the rhetoric department, nor the University of Texas at Austin. Have a lovely day, stay safe and healthy. This is Gabrielle Pons and Rose Torres from Principles of Rhetoric signing off.